The pastors have been talking over the past month or so over this topic of being all in. Um, and if you've read the All In Mark Batterson book, um, you know that the, the very first chapter of his book, and he loves his vocabulary and he likes to be dramatic sometimes, the very first title of, of that chapter is called Pack Your Coffin. And normally that kind of phrase and that kind of chapter would turn me off because I'm not really fond of the melodrama. But it was a short chapter, and so I read through it. And it talks about this missionary to an island, the New Hebrides in South Pacific. And this island and this group of islands had this long-standing reputation of eating their missionaries rather than listening to them, which would immediately make it my least favorite place to be called to go. Just saying. But the book names this missionary as A.W. Milne, and he calls him one of the one-way missionaries. And I guess there were um, a group of these missionaries at one point who packed up their belongings, and instead of using suitcases, they used coffins. And they bought one-way tickets, and they put all their belongings in there because they weren't coming back. They were all in. They were going one way wherever God had called them, intending never to return. And that changed the story to me from being melodramatic to one of amazing self-sacrifice and that life lived all in for Christ in a way that most of us in 21st century America haven't been called to. It was difficult to find out more information about this missionary. It took some digging, and while I was looking, it turned out there was another missionary by the exact same name, who left London to go to China as one of the first missionaries in China and began to translate the Bible and do these amazing things. And this is the beauty of learning about these missionaries and, and these lives that they led and going from one to the next and being so inspired. But this missionary was hard to find information about, and I felt like whatever was in the book was kind of sketchy details, and, and there were no notes in the back showing where he'd found this information. So eventually, I found that his name was William, and it was actually the son, I think, of the man that, that Batterson might have been referring to. And he did die after 37 years on that island at the hands of what had been described a deranged island inhabitant. He had worked his whole life there. His parents had worked their whole lives there and had been well-respected on this island that had previously had no use for missionaries. And they said that at one point, this island of Nguna had an 80% um, population that had given their lives to Christ, thanks to this family. His mother had gone back to Scotland, dying of the malaria that she'd gotten on the island. Father died there. He came back from boarding school in New Zealand, back to the life his parents had been called to, spent his whole life on that island as well. These two generations of this family, a great personal sacrifice just because they had followed that prompting of the Holy Spirit. One takeaway for me from this was this lack of notoriety or name recognition. I've gone to Christian school, read countless missionary biographies, love history, love geography, never heard of him, never. He was all in in this remote corner of the world, having packed his coffin and not looked back. Obviously not doing it for notoriety, clearly not for wealth, in a very unsafe place, 
because God called him there. I want to introduce you to a 16-year-old girl named Marina. My name is Marina, and I am 16 years old. I wake up early every day to do chores. I do both the man's job and the women's chores in my house. I feed and take care of my grandma. Then I prepare my school clothes. Later, I return and do my homework. My mom died a few years ago, and I'm all alone now. I don't have any brothers or sisters. It's just me and my grandmother. She's 16. She has a grandma who is blind. Several years ago, when she was a young child, she received a shoebox. It was crazy. I was so happy when I received my shoebox gift. I remember getting a letter that said, Jesus loves you. This shoebox led her to the local church. Now local church is part of your family. Now local church helps her with her house or any other needs that appear. Today, Operation Christmas Child comes with gifts. Shoeboxes open children's hearts. When a child receives this shoebox, he understands somebody loves him. Before I lived without Jesus, my life was different. But after I received him, he changed my life. I'm glad that God thinks about me. He wants to take care of me and my family. I want to thank those who pack these gifts. May God bless you. When I watched that for the first time, all I could think of was how depressing her life was, how hopeless, and where could she find her joy? But when you get to the end of that and you see her smile and you see her handing out boxes to others, see her pat and kiss her grandmother's face, see her greeting people inside the church, you know that God has transformed her life. You see that she has hope. You see that the message of the good news changed her life. Just the way that William Milne had gone, 
to that island to change lives. Someone had changed Marina's life with that box. No one really knows her. She's pretty anonymous. She's probably not going to be famous because of that three-minute YouTube video. But God is still going to use her. God has already used her. And she's following that prompt of the Holy Spirit. She could have taken that box and gone home. Not let it change her at all. Not open her heart to the Lord. And yet she let him change her life. And follow the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And what God can do with her, we may not know until heaven. Because in that corner of the world, wherever she is in whatever Slavic country that is, God is using her the same way that he used that missionary. If you have your Bibles with me today, we're going to turn to the book of Ruth. Pretty early on in the Old Testament there. And I'd like to spend some time examining another young woman who was anonymous in her world. But her willingness to pack up her coffin and to be all in changed the lives of countless people in her own lifetime and for generations to come. We are still feeling the effects of those life changes. So Ruth is this fantastic little book of four chapters that holds so many messages. You could spend weeks and weeks doing all sorts of sermons and topics about the book of Ruth. And yet we're really focusing on her life and her choices right now. But I really would encourage you to go home and read the whole thing, especially if today is going to be one of the first times that you are becoming familiar with her and her story. There's no certainty as to who wrote the book. It was written about the time of the judges, about 1,300 years before Christ was born, and about 200 years before King David was born. And so basically what had happened in this story was you have the people of Israel who during this time period continuously would walk away from God. And continuously God would have to bring judgment on them and punish them to get them to turn around and repent and come back. And it was this vicious cycle. And perhaps during one of these cycles, this famine comes on the land. And again, for some place where in most of our houses... Having a food shortage means all the good snacks and cereal is gone. We don't have any understanding. There might be some of you who have a real understanding of what happens when there's not enough rain or there's not enough sun or there's too much rain or something happens and you can't grow enough food. But in this world, there was this man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi, and they had two sons. And there was a famine. And for some reason, instead of staying where he was in Bethlehem, and and in some of the uh, studies and the translations, it it looked like something about that area where they were, it was almost like the breadbasket of the area. So when famine came to Bethlehem, you knew it was bad. But instead of staying with the rest of his countrymen, for some reason, Elimelech takes his family and goes to Moab. And of all the places they could have gone, the Israelites hated the Moabites. And if you want to look back later on on your own, the story of how the, co- the country and the people of Moab came to be was one of um, an incestuous relationship between Abraham's nephew Lot and one of his daughters. And this was a country that Israel hated and was at odds with all the time. And why he chose to take his family there, we don't know. 
But they go, they find daughters among the Moabite women. Again, not God's choice. God wanted these Israelites to have Israelite wives and to stay within the country. No idea why. Naomi's husband dies. The boys die. Now Naomi's got two daughter-in-laws from this country. No grandsons, no husband, nothing. So she's ready to go home. She's broken. She feels like God has punished her for these things that have gone on. And she's just going to go home, a broken woman. And so that's where we pick up in Ruth chapter 1. And I'm going to read those verses to you. So if you have it, it's verses 11 through 18. It says, but Naomi said, return home, my daughters. Why would you come with me? Am I going to have any more sons who could become your husbands? Return home, my daughters. I am too old to have another husband. Even if I thought there was still hope for me, even if I had a husband tonight and another, then gave birth to sons, would you wait until they grew up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters. It is more bitter for me than for you because the Lord's hand has gone out against me. At this they wept again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me ever so severely if anything but death separates you and me. When Naomi realized that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped urging her. Well, that's great. Ruth has made that stand. She's packed her coffin. She's all in. And now what? She doesn't know at this moment how her story is going to end. And she doesn't know what God has called her to. She had no guarantee things were going to be better. She was leaving security. She was likely still a young woman in her 20s. She could have gone back to her family, had her father remarry her off to another Moabite guy, stay close to mama. She's leaving everything to return to someone where there was no return ticket where she was going. She was going to Israel as a foreign-born woman of a widow with no one to take care of her, no money, destitute, hoping to live off the charity of distant relatives. And that wasn't much of a bright future for this young woman. You begin to see a theme in the people that we're looking at today. Why did she do it? Naomi wasn't pressuring her. The Bible doesn't indicate that anything was pressuring her. Just her love for Naomi and the inner knowledge that this is what she was supposed to do. It was the Holy Spirit letting her know that this is what she was supposed to do. And a couple of things stand out from this story that I wanted to point out. That the hand of God. We see the hand of God so many places in our lives. Sometimes we don't see it until later. Sometimes you see it coming. Sometimes you have to wait until that chapter of the story is over to look back and realize where God's hand was. So just thinking about the story of Ruth quickly, number one, had it not been for that famine, that whole family had not been, would never have been in Moab. There's no reason for them to have traveled. Why Moab? No Moab, no Ruth. Good thing the famine came along. 
Well, when they come back, Ruth is left to the only way that she could survive and feed Naomi and herself was to go during these uh, times of harvest behind the people who were um, getting the grain, the barley, the wheat, the, whatever it was, and pick up what was left on the ground and, and be able to make that into bread. And that was uh, what was supposed to happen in the culture at the time, that people who owned these fields were supposed to leave that out. But she just happened to end up in Boaz's field, who just happened to be related to Naomi's family, who just happened to be a really good guy, who protected her, who told his servants to leave extra food for her, who invited her to come and sit at his table for lunch each day and made sure that this woman, who could have been very vulnerable with no one to protect her, was protected and taken care of. Good thing she just happened to be in his field. And then, as only a Jewish mother-in-law could do, Naomi gets involved trying to push Ruth and Boaz together. And if you read that chapter on your own, to us in the 21st century, they're very questionable means of doing this. I don't think there's a mother in this room who would tell their daughter to go in the middle of the night after a party and go lay down on the ground at the feet of this man who may or may not be interested in her and put a blanket over her. In no way, shape, or form does that sound like really good maternal advice. But I understand that it was more the custom at the time. But still, that could have gone really badly, but it didn't. The legal proceedings that followed, yes, Boaz was interested. But there was somebody else closer. Again, all of this, nothing like what suburban Boston life looks like. But she had, Naomi's family had property. And so Ruth came with property. Well, this closer relative wanted the property, but he didn't want another wife. Apparently he was all set in that department. He could have changed his mind. He could have stepped up and said, sure, I'll take her along with the property. But he didn't. So Boaz was able to do that. Good thing that guy wasn't interested. And finally, this woman had been married for 10 years with no children, marries Boaz and immediately has a child. The hand of God all the way through this story, none of which Ruth could have seen when on the road, when her mother-in-law is saying, go back, go back, there's nothing for you. She said, no, I'm going, and I'm not looking back. Ruth becomes the great-grandmother of King David and an ancestor of Jesus Christ. Do you think that was on her mind when she was on the road that day? I don't think so. It's likely she didn't even know that there was a Messiah prophesied. Maybe she did. Maybe she didn't. She becomes the ancestor. This woman who was nothing, had no social status, came from a country hated by the Israelites, had nothing going for her, becomes a key person in the line of Jesus Christ because she said yes, because she packed her coffin, because she didn't look back. So another character in the Old Testament I wanted to talk about, and if you haven't realized by now, I love the stories of the Old Testament. I love the people. They are real people. They are people who mess up in really big ways sometimes. And they trust God and do amazing things. And God put them there. They are not stories. We do not believe they are stories. These were people who lived and breathed and loved God and served God and messed up. 
And God put them all there for us. And so one of those individuals was Elisha, the prophet. So Elisha was um, this wealthy farmer's son. And this is where, doing some extra study, I found some things that I had no idea. Spend my life, I could tell you the difference between Elijah and Elisha, which one came first, how they both died, what kings they, blah, 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 blah. Couldn't have told you that he was wealthy. Because to me, reading the verse that says he had 12 yoke of oxen, okay, I have a guinea pig and a dog. Six of one, half a dozen of the other. But apparently, your average farmer during that time thought they were doing okay if they had one pair of oxen. So to have 12 was a sign of wealth. Okay, so he's wealthy, where his family is. And the verses that we're going to read in a minute from 1 Kings don't talk about brothers and sisters. So we can extrapolate that he's probably going to inherit the farm, literally. And, and then he lives in this area that the Bible calls Abel Mahola, which translates to Brook of the Round Dancing, or this pretty meadow. Okay, so he lives in a pretty place on a farm with lots of money, which I guess in those days, that sets him up pretty well for life. So this is where we are. If you have, again, your Bibles, if you want to turn to 1 Kings chapter 19, we're going to catch up as Elijah introduces himself to Elisha for the first time. So 1 Kings chapter 19, just those three verses I want to read to you from 19 to 21. It says, so Elijah went home from there and found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him and threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let me kiss my father and mother goodbye, he said, and then I will come with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What have I done to you? So this is where I stopped last night, and I thought, no, that doesn't sound right. You were the one who threw the cloak on him in the first place. Why are you telling him? Like, it didn't make any sense. And so then I looked in a different version, and it said, but mind you, don't forget what I've just done to you. So it wasn't, you know, go away. What do I have to do with you? It's go ahead and go away, but come back, because we're not done. So Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat and gave it to the people, and they ate. Then he set out to follow Elijah and became his attendant. So this is where, if we were in Crash Kids, and you were the little people, it would be dangerous to sit in the front row because... I would probably come by and say, now, I'm Elijah, and here's my cloak, and I'm going to throw it on someone. Thank you, Heather. And that's going to indicate to them without me saying a word that she is supposed to now leave everything she knows and become my servant. But because it's not Crash Kids, Heather won't get put in that position, and I will walk away from her right now. But you think about it. How many times have you had someone come up to you, throw their coat on you, and then expect you to come follow them and be their servant and leave everything? It has not happened to me recently at all, ever. And 
And then you think about his parents. So he goes home, says goodbye to his parents, kills all the animals that make the money for them, sacrifices them, and, and has everybody eat them on an altar made out of all the farming equipment. So even when he leaves, the parents can't go start all over again without starting completely from scratch. And then he leaves. You, you wonder what his parents thought about that. I wonder what his parents thought about that. You think God hopefully gave them some special grace because I'm not sure I would have been really thrilled at that point. Now, maybe, maybe because it was Elijah and maybe because he had been this powerful prophet for so long, there was this unbelievable joy in his parents' heart that this amazing prophet had chosen their son to be with him. But you don't know. You think about those things. But Elijah at that point was, no, there was no going back. He might as well have packed his coffin. I really doubt his parents wanted to see him anymore after that. He was all in. There was nothing to go back to. And he followed Elijah for the rest of Elijah's time on earth. During the decades that Elisha served the Lord, he did twice as many miracles as Elijah. He served many kings. He had some of the greatest adventures in the Old Testament. If you have not read through the book of 1 Kings and some of the things he did and the adventures that he had, you really should. But unlike Elijah, who had been taken up to heaven in this chariot of fire and didn't see death and God just took him, Elisha died on a painful sickbed, suffering. Why? Was he less powerful than Elijah? Was he less wonderful? Had he messed up somewhere in his life and and not done what God had asked him to do? There's no indication of that. The life that he was supposed to live wasn't an easy one. God didn't have his comforts in mind as the most important part of Elisha's ministry here on earth. Just like that missionary... William Milne, from hundreds and hundreds of years later. He came to this painful and ignoble end. But Elisha never wavered. If you read through 1 Kings, you see that even on his deathbed, he was still giving good counsel to the king of Israel. He was all in until his very last breath. Not asking God, how come you took Elijah and you left me here sick? still obeying God to the very end. So have you had that all-in moment for yourself yet? Has God given you the opportunity to pack your coffin? So dramatic. For those missionaries, for Ruth, for Elisha, there was this defining moment where they had to make that decision. When that missionary stepped on the ship, when Ruth decided to walk with Naomi instead of away from her, when Elisha decided to sacrifice his oxen and walk away instead of saying, no thanks, here's your cloak back. Those were all defining moments they had. But Marina, our girl from the video, didn't have one of those moments because those moments, that was her whole life. For her, it was her whole life. But she had that moment where she could decide, I am going to accept Jesus as my Savior and not wallow and not live in this place that I'm in, but believe that God has something else. She could have said, 
how come other children have so much and all I have is this box? But she didn't say that. And it was clear from the way she's begun to serve already in that video that she's let God change her life and to be all in. Have you lived for years in circumstances where you think you're prevented from serving God? Are you at a place where you know God is asking you for more and you don't want to give it? He might be asking you to pack your coffin just to see if you're willing, like Abraham and Isaac, when God asked him to sacrifice Isaac, to see if he was willing and obedient. He could be getting ready to send you to places you never imagined to do these radical things. Or he could just be wanting you to say yes to him right now because he has things for you to do right here. I said yes to God many years ago as a little girl growing up in a church like this. If you're a church child yourself, you know you get saved about 58 times. <laughs> every time there's a kid's crusade, vacation Bible school, every time a new pastor comes or there's a special speaker, you go to camp. You say a lot of things to God that you mean, but you don't understand maybe. Like, yes, I'm all yours. Do with me what you want. I said them and I meant them. But a lot of times I think I thought I knew what I was saying yes to. And you know that saying no to God is unproductive and foolish, right? If you haven't read the book of Jonah, just read it. Saying no to God, not so helpful. But I think that when you say yes, you don't always know what you're saying yes to. Ruth didn't know what she was saying yes to. I do think, I, I have so much respect for that missionary because he knew what he was saying yes to because he had grown up on that island with his father and with that tribe and with those people. And he went back. He knew what he was saying yes to. Elisha didn't know what kind of life he was saying yes to. Being chased around the countryside by these powerful, uh, crazy kings who wanted him dead and, and all the uh, amazing things that happened to him in his life. So any number of years ago, when I was in between work, and I've told this story before, but I think last night I realized there was a new dimension to it. I was at a girls' ministry event, and I remember this so clearly because it was during worship time and music time, and the music was dreadful. It just really was. And I wasn't enjoying it, but it was, it was so much more important then because I knew I wasn't all wrapped up in anything. I really was just in this place where I wanted to hear from God. And, and he said, will you do anything I ask you to do? And I don't normally walk around saying, I feel like God said this to me. But that was really clear that day. And again, saying no to God is foolish and unproductive. And the correct answer is yes, I will do what you want me to do. Thinking that I had passed the test, I was going to go on my merry way, I'd go back into a school setting, and everything would go back to the way it was supposed to be. And instead of going back to the way it was supposed to be, God provided me with the opportunity to work here at the church. And that has been a wonderful opportunity 
to be downstairs, to be working with Pastor Rennie and Pastor Selwyn and to do more in the different areas. But again, I, I just wondered, is this what God had? And, and I realized last night while I was putting this together that when I said yes to him that day, what I was saying yes to was this. Where I'm standing right now, none of those years, none of those times as a little girl when I said yes to God or when I, I, I was preparing to do things I thought he wanted me to do, none of them included standing on a platform, speaking on a Sunday morning with a microphone in my hand. And God has truly called me to the little people. He really has. But these opportunities that I get to come up here and do this and this, this new life, this new change, this new shift. I didn't know I was saying yes to that. Would have scared me to death. But that's what I was saying yes to. God hasn't asked me to pack a coffin the way these people have, but when you say yes, there's no going back. It is a one-way ticket forward to following what God wants you to do. And so I want to encourage you today to answer his call on your life. It does not have to be dramatic. But he is God, your father, and he wants to speak to you all the time. So much more than we stop and listen. What has he been saying to you that you don't want to hear? Or what has he been saying to you that you do want to hear and you don't know what to do about it? And how can you go forward from today helping those people like Marina around you who have nothing and no one and are learning to trust God? Today, God might be calling you to, to go outside and, um, and, and sponsor people for the walk. And I hope you do. I actually don't think you need to be called to do that. I think that's part of what we need to do in support of this project that we've been working on for so long. But maybe more than you were planning. Maybe there are things that you can still do to support that Haiti trip that's coming. Maybe God was speaking to you during that video, and I, I just encourage you to go on YouTube and watch those Operation Christmas Child videos. Watch them. Because they will inspire you in your own life. There's one I put on the church Facebook page about a young man from Rwanda who grew up during that horrible time of genocide in one of those orphanages and how that box changed his life, saved his life, saved his eternal soul, and now he's back there sharing and giving out boxes and changing others' lives. Or maybe none of the things that you think God is speaking to you about right now have anything to do with projects and they have to do with you and your heart. Giving in to him. Maybe you're sitting here today, you have never heard of Ruth or Elisha. You think some of these stories are the craziest things you've ever heard and you're not sure what you think about all of this. And I will tell you that once you are all in, the life that God will call you to is so much more exciting and worthwhile and purposeful. In the book of Revelations, as we close this morning, it's a familiar verse. It says, chapter 3, verse 16. It says, so because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. And that is not the place that we are supposed to be. God did not call us to be eh 
eh is not all in. God has called you to be all in, to say yes to whatever he wants you to do, knowing you may have no idea what is on the other side of it, but knowing there is no better place for you to be. If you would stand with me this afternoon. And I do want to pray over you that wherever you are in any of those questions, in any of those places, that you would respond to God today. And I would ask that the the prayer team and any of our deacons come up as well. Because after I'm done praying, these altars are always a place for you to come and for someone to reach out to you and pray with you and believe with you. And if you are in a place today where you feel like you are all in, there's no going back for you, then I want you to reach out to someone around you or you come up here as well and be one praying. Because we don't all have to be in that place of running away from God. I believe that there are many people in this room who are doing and going forward with what God has asked them to do already. And then your job is to turn around and help somebody else pack. But we're going to pray today. And while we're praying, I would ask that the prayer team comes up. Father, I thank you for these examples all throughout the Bible that we can look at of people who sacrificed everything not always knowing what they were sacrificing, not really knowing what you had for them on the other side, just following the prompting of the Holy Spirit that said, pack it up and get moving. And I pray for the congregation here, the family of God standing here. Lord, if there are folks who have things in their lives they feel like keep them from being useful to you, keep them from saying yes and being all in. I pray that today be the day that they lay them down. Almost as physical, tangible things right at this altar, one after the other, to lay them down and to take that step forward, knowing that you have unbelievable things, that when you say you have a plan for us and it is a good plan, you leave no one out. Call us to great things. We're ready. We are all in. We thank you for this, Lord Jesus, in your precious name.